I'm Michael Foster. And I'm Norm Tennant, and you're listening to It's Good to Be Man, the podcast where we are extending God's house and Father Rule by helping men to establish their own houses in strength, workmanship, and wisdom. So what are we talking about on this episode, Michael? Well, we, and, and by we, I mostly mean you, we're going to be talking about singleness. Uh, namely, is it a gift? Is it a curse? What is 1 Corinthians 7 really saying about singleness? So all that sort of stuff. All right, let's do it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that is not how our music goes. <laughs> Last year, because it is the year 2020, we published an article on the site entitled Singleness is Not Normal. Uh, do you recall why we decided to produce that article, Non? I don't believe it was in response to anything in particular. It was more a general response to a kind of a line of attack, which we were encountering a number of times. And it was basically, I think it had two main attack vectors, I guess you could say. You, you had people who were not in our camp um, or, or were thinking about being in our camp, but weren't particularly convinced yet. And they were taking the line, you know, you talk a lot about marriage and a lot about fruitfulness and you're excluding singles and it's hurtful and it's going to turn people off. And the kind of attitude that they were taking was if you go to the gospel coalition and just look at the topic that they have for singleness, all those kinds of articles, all that kind of stuff is one of the places that people were coming from. The other place was the opposite end of the spectrum where we had a lot of men who had decided that marriage was not worth the trouble and didn't like the fact that we talked about marriage and fruitfulness and wanted to be just, you know, standard MGTOW men going their own way marriage isn't worth it, women suck, it's too dangerous, all that kind of thing. And so they didn't like the fact that we were talking about the Bible and marriage either. They thought singleness was also fine. Yeah, and it's an article that I, I actually sent to a lot of people. I'll just cut and paste the URL and send it on over because it comes up a lot. It's kind of like anytime you talk about how fruitfulness is good, to have lots of kids is good. And immediately what you hear is like, well, what about people who can't have kids? Yeah. Even though that they're the vast minority, they're not just raising the question of, well, what about singles? They, they take it an, another step and they, they go to argue that singleness, actually, this is singleness is a gift. It's a very special status and something people should be grateful for. And, and in some cases, even maybe, you know, aspire towards. And right. uh, we wanted to be able to deal with that. And, and your tactic, and your tactic was to talk about patterns of creation. So, and that's that's what you did in that article. Can you can you walk us through these patterns? The when we say patterns of creation, it's probably helpful to emphasize that what we're talking about is the norms that God has built into the world. So it's not a case of looking at what Genesis says necessarily, although Genesis does have some things to say. And it's not a case of looking at other parts of the Bible. It's really a case of looking at nature itself. What has God said in nature? And with regard to human sexuality, there are three very especially important norms that God has built into the creation itself when it comes to human society and sexuality. So the first is the norm of men bearing God's authority. The second is the norm of men and women becoming one flesh. And the third is the norm of women being fruitful. And the reason we focus on this triad is because it follows a logic 
so the first step is that women are the beneficiaries of men via men's rulership. The second is that men and women are the beneficiaries of each other via marriage. And the third is that men are the beneficiaries of women via children. And these create a kind of bedrock structure in the creational design for the sexes. And without looking at scripture, you can tell fairly easily if you take the time to simply kind of work out the system that these are bedrock structures because when you look at what happens when you try to eliminate them, you discover that societies slide rapidly into what can only be described as madness. So in the first case, if you eliminate male headship, in the personal realm, this produces a lot of sexual confusion. And in the political realm, it produces unsustainable economies and ideologies. So men become effeminate and passive. And then the welfare state has to expand to fill the vacuum of father rule in this kind of vicious spiral of wealth redistribution, as it's called, that further incentivizes dependency and punishes enterprise. And at the same time, women become butch by insisting on inclusion in all glamorous male roles, not, not the unglamorous ones, obviously no one wants to work in waste management. And eventually the drive for androgyny just produces this transgender madness and, and the debt-based bubble economy that we're currently saddled with. In the second case, when you eliminate marriage, you produce licentiousness in the personal realm and, and disease, and you break down the bonds that hold the social political realm together. So once women, uh, once women become convinced that the ideal for their lives is to play at being men, and once everyone is convinced that love sanctifies sex rather than the marriage covenant, and once these dual liberations have proceeded apace, women begin to realize that competing as men in the job market is actually a lousy deal. And men began to begin to realize that lacking a willing helpmeet is also a lousy deal. And so they both begin to resent each other and become rivals in a zero-sum race rather than relying on each other as partners in an enterprise of production. And meanwhile, the intimacy, which previously was reserved for strengthening marital bonds, is transformed into this casual recreation, and then it's despised as casual recreation. And as Paul says in Romans, people receive the due penalty for their error in their flesh. Yeah, and that's why we see kind of this polarity where the where kind of the feminists and anti-feminists end up functioning the same in life, right? Despising yeah, they end up sex. in the same place. And the third point is that when you eliminate female fruitfulness, you produce mental illness in the personal realm. And this kind of, man, this monstrous industry of child sacrifice in the social political realm. It occurred to me the other day that in the 20th century, we managed to kill through non-Christian ideologies. We managed to murder more people than lived on the earth in the 19th century. So once marriage is nixed as the nexus of social cohesion and women are convinced to play at being men, and the concept of the household has become meaningless, and recreational sex is established as everyone's right, then it's natural for a woman's capacity for children to seem like a handicap rather than an asset. So to be in the home is to be trapped, unable to pursue the thing that must be most desirable because men naturally pursue it. And how is one to enjoy one's sexuality when doing so might produce offspring? Mm -hmm. So children become despised, and thanks to modern technology, they can be disposed of secretly in the womb before anyone has a chance to look at them and become attached to them. And 1.5 billion slain babies later, here we are, with women mysteriously more empowered and yet more depressed than ever, as the, um, the seminal paper, The Paradox of Declining Female Happiness by Betsy Stevenson and Justin Wolfers aptly illustrates. All right, man. So those, those are three 
kind of, that's a mouthful right there. How, how would you kind of sum that up? Well, I guess you could call this the triad. So you've got women as the beneficiaries of men through rulership, men and women as beneficiaries of each other by marriage, and men as the beneficiaries of women through children. A society that goes after this triad, which just insists on eliminating every strut in this mutually reinforcing structure. It's a society which has to try to normalize singleness and radical individualism. It has no choice because that's what naturally flows out of getting rid of these, these pieces of the triad. And so it becomes a society of mutually reinforcing sins. You know, people are increasingly biting and devouring each other. They're having less sex, as we know from various studies, and they're killing more of their children. And such a society is doomed to wither and pass away because it literally can't sustain itself. There are plenty of studies that say that the U.S. fertility rate is below the level needed to replace the population, for example. This is, I mean, this is what you said in the article. This is judgment. And what one way that you that God judges a people is to leave them to the consequences of their sin. Right. Very so we, so. Do, we deliver, uh, when we excommunicate someone from the church, we're delivering them over to Satan through the destruction of their flesh. We're leaving them to the natural consequences of what happens when you kick and rebel against God. So, so now all these things are coming together and we're under judgment. And instead of calling this kind of exploding rates of singleness uh, and everything that's associated with it, as judgment and something to repent of and correct, uh, we're treating it as, as normal, right? That's right. The church is saying, the church is doing what the world is doing. It's saying, this is something wonderful. This is a blessing. This isn't a symptom of a profoundly sick and dying culture. This is something which you should embrace and enjoy. They call, and, and it's not a curse. It's not a curse at all. It's actually, it's a gift, right? Yeah. So, so what does scripture say? Does scripture teach the gift of singleness? Nowhere. Nowhere does scripture speak of such a gift. It speaks of fruitful marriage as a gift. So you've got Proverbs 31.10, you've got Psalm 127.3, you've got a whole bunch of other passages. It speaks of celibacy as a gift, but it speaks of celibacy as a gift that's only given to some. And the key passages here are Matthew 19.11-12 and 1 Corinthians 7 six to seven. All right. So you're saying that singleness is an imaginary gift. It's not real. It's not in the Bible, but celibacy is a real gift. So the biblical question, I guess, is not to ask whether or not you have the gift of singleness, but rather, do you have the gift of celibacy? Correct. Let me go ahead and just read this, uh, Matthew nineteen eleven through 12, because a lot of people probably don't have it memorized. Uh, but Jesus said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs whom were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. So that's not the gift of singleness. No, no. Another way of um, rendering it is he that is able to receive it, let him receive it, which I think is maybe a better way of putting it because it's not just a case of accepting the the statement. It's It's more a case of receiving a gift. And this is a gift which is given by God to certain people for the sake of the kingdom, he says. So these are people who have been made eunuchs. um, And and, I mean, that could be taken in a number of ways, but ultimately what it means is that you don't have a sex drive. And the reason for that is so that they can serve the kingdom. But this is something which he's very explicit about. Not all men can receive the saying, but they to whom it is given. It is an exceptional yeah, we, gift. We don't tend to see a lot of eunuchs around these days. It's no longer considered an acceptable practice. But the biblical question to ask is not whether you have some imaginary gift of singleness. The biblical question is to ask, do you have the gift of celibacy? 
do have I been given the lack of sex drive required to not burn with passion that that would require me to marry? Maybe another way too also is not just a lack of sex drive, but also a mastery of it. Because sure. I don't, I, you know, part of it is that if you if you have the ability to control your sex drive and so much so that you don't burn. You know, it's not just that a eunuch magically doesn't have sex drive, a eunuch for the kingdom. I think it could also be someone that has an extraordinary self-control over it, so much so that it's not a distraction. So how, In a way, how, it's how, similar to the, the gift of faith. You know, some, everyone, all Christians have the gift of faith in the sense that they have all been given faith by the Father. But not all Christians have the gift of faith that allows them to, say, pray uh, and receive many of the gifts that we would consider quite exceptional in the modern day. You know, you think of Francis Chan, for example, and the kind of prayers that he had answered. That looks to me like a gift of faith, which is different to the standard. What do you think? How many people have the gift of celibacy? I've met one or two men and maybe three or four women, but just playing the averages, uh, if you're asking this question, the answer is no. Most people do not have this gift. And if you don't, if you burn with desire, then singleness is not a gift to you. It's what the Bible would call a curse just as it calls barrenness a curse. When God creates you with normal human desires to fulfill the creational norms and natural norms that he established for humanity, and the sex drive is a natural desire that fulfills the command to be fruitful and multiply, but then he prevents you from actually doing that, that's an occasion for lament and prayer, not for putting a brave face on it and pretending that it's actually a blessing. That doesn't mean that you're under a curse. Uh, It doesn't mean that God hates you or is punishing you. And neither does it mean that it will not become a blessing to you. It simply means that our father has afflicted you with something abnormal in order to work it for your good and for the good of all his children, as Romans 8.28 says. That brings us to 1 Corinthians 7, which is kind of ground zero. It very much is. Idea of the gift of singleness. So let's let's walk through this. Once you explain where they, they go wrong with this idea that 1 Corinthians 7 teaches a gift of singleness. Right. So 1 Corinthians 7, the, the key verses that tend to get broken out are verses 8, 38, and 40. So verse 8 says, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Verse 38 says, so then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. And verse 40 says, yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God that's referring to someone who isn't married. So I guess you probably heard the, the saying that a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. And those verses just by themselves sound fairly clear. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the context of Paul's remarks, they start to take on quite a different tone. And there are two main things to look at here. And the first is that Paul is speaking in a time of distress. So this is verse 26, and it really can't be overstated how important this is for setting the entire context of the passage and understanding what Paul is getting at. Verse 26 says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. In other words, as the NET puts it, because of the impending crisis, I think it's best for you to remain as you are. Now, does this sound like advice for all Christians across all time for all their lives? No. I mean, obviously not, right? It sounds like advice for Christians who can expect some kind of imminent persecution or some kind of imminent catastrophe or disaster or something like that. So Paul's concern is that being married in these kinds of situations increases your vulnerability to sin because it increases the leverage that the world can exert against you. Your loyalties can easily become divided between your need to protect your wife or follow your husband and your need to protect your faith or follow your Lord. 
The one will be anxious, as he says in verse 32, and have worldly troubles, as he says in verse 28. But what manner of worldly troubles is an important question. Are they typical or are they usual? Uh, Maybe you can read uh, verses 29 to 31 to give us the answer there. Sure. So it says, uh, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. For now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now you and I both have a strong opinion on what this means, but we're also not keen to get into eschatology. But it's important to emphasize that the only way to understand this passage in order, in a way that doesn't turn the entire history of the church into a present distress with these extreme instructions that none of us actually follows is to see it as referring to some kind of event in the first century, most likely the fall of Jerusalem and the, upheaval in the heavenly places that went along with that. And the reason we think that is that Paul is directly mimicking the language of the Olivet Discourse in Luke 17, 31 to 34, where Jesus talks about these things. And he described a crisis and distress that would occur before his generation, which is Paul's generation, passed away. Now, we're certainly open to the notion that this advice could be applied to our present distress of feminism, where men are ruined daily by you know unjust laws that turn them into debt slaves from divorces they didn't want and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. We don't think that Christian MGTOW is a thing. Christian MGTOW is a contradiction in terms because Jesus actually died to save us from MGTOW. Men going their own ways is, is you know what Isaiah 53, 6 talks about when he talks about Jesus dying for us. But we'd certainly encourage men to remain single if they do not burn because of the fact that marriage can be a dangerous and distressing thing in the 21st century. But that said, clearly Paul's counsel cannot be called upon to overturn the firmly established norm that a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife. It's just not going there. Yeah, I mean, well, Hebrews 13... Four, right? Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. Uh, God will judge. So obviously, we can't have we can't have this uh, dishonorable view of marriage, and that's what's happening. They're trying to minimize the value of marriage and lift the value of being single, and that's what we see in the feminists and the anti-feminists, and more and more in the sort of gospel coalition-ish evangelicals. And that is not what scripture teaches. Once you start elevating something which is generally a curse into a blessing, you are dishonoring the actual blessing, which is marriage. So let's keep going. Uh, Verses 38 and 40, what's going on there? That's the other side of the coin. The second thing that needs to be seriously considered by anyone trying to use 1 Corinthians 7 as a proof text that singleness is a gift. Verses 38 and 40 are directed to people who are already betrothed. This isn't a minor or subtle point. From verse 36, Paul is specifically speaking to people who are already promised in marriage, which makes his advice not just strange, but I think incoherent if we're to imagine that the present distress is an ongoing and normal state of affairs for the church age. Now, we don't need to actually spend a lot of time on this point to establish why it's important. You just have to ask yourself, if Paul meant to imply that marriage is no longer the ideal and the norm for the church, Why would he focus on people who were already promised in marriage and advise them not to go through with it rather than just advising anyone considering marriage that it's better to avoid it if they aren't tempted to sexual immorality? Yeah, that's a good point. So he explicitly says, not never get married, 
but rather remain as you are. Now, surely what he's doing then is not offering universal advice about marriage in general. He's offering counseling to those of his readers who are intending marriage. And he's saying, look, you need to suspend the normal flow of your lives for the time being on account of this event, which is going to seriously disrupt that flow of your lives. It's going to make your lives very hard. He also does not say that the betrothal should be broken off, only that it should be put on hold. So if he was intending to give general advice for all Christians, it makes no sense that he would zero in on this specific case and advise a holding pattern. He would speak much more generally to anyone considering marriage and advise not a holding pattern, but say, look, change your plans entirely. But then we also have this issue of of fathers considering giving their daughters a marriage. How does that play into this? So a minority of translators like the NASB will take it that he's not speaking to people who are betrothed and considering marriage. He's speaking to people, uh, to fathers who are considering giving their daughters in marriage. It, it could be read that way. Um, I'm not overly sympathetic to that reading, but it, it could be. But firstly, it would be very cruel advice to recommend remaining firm and keeping one's daughter in the household rather than finding her a husband if it were meant to be advice for all Christians in all time, right? I mean, are we really suggesting that Paul is saying that no fathers should give their daughters away um, in general? Surely not. But secondly, have you met any people who take the view that singleness is a gift and a blessing and also think that fathers should be arranging marriages for their daughters? No, no. No, me neither. So I don't think we need to spend any more time on that. Yeah. And, and so basically what's going on is First Corinthians 7, it, it just, it gives us a sage counsel that exactly mimics what we already read in Matthew 19, which again, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive the same, but only those to whom it is given, right? That's right. So if it's given you not to marry, if you have the gift of celibacy, then it may well be to your advantage and to the advantage of God's people. Uh, that, that's kind of the main point that Jesus brings out. But you can't confuse this with the gift of singleness, let alone some kind of norm. Because if you cannot exercise self-control, then the creation norm does indeed stand, and you should marry. Because as 1 Corinthians 7, 9 says, it is better to marry than to burn. Well, we'll pick up this topic more next time, but until then, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. 